This is a special episode from Fintech Cappuccino. Not in your regular Saturday morning this time, but live from the Moneypot booth at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam. This podcast is hosted by a Fintech entrepreneur and CEO of RedSnap, Brian van Wachum. Today, our guests are Julia Guetta, Head of Payment Strategy at Red Compass, Jane Loginova, Chief Strategy Officer at BPC and Co-Founder and CEO at Radar Payments, and Marijke Konings, Chief Product Officer at Bankify. And obviously, we are going to talk payments. I'm sitting here surrounded by four women. I feel a bit like a thorn between four roses. Is this a coincidence or is payments part of the financial services sector where women are finally taking over? Well, I'm not sure we're quite taking over just yet. Um, we and should I'm not have... sure that we're finally kind of so <laughs> <laughs> We should have a long time ago. <laughs> okay, so grab your chances, ladies, because you're live in the podcast from Money 2020. So before we dive in, you have all been at Money 2020 for almost two days now. So what is the most exciting thing you have seen or heard the last couple of days? Jane. Yeah, well, I think the first observation is that um, compared to the other months, um, this one I, I see is quite heavily dominated by fintechs. There are really not that many traditional players. You don't even see the schemes here, uh, the big banks, and even the big, um, you know, um, payment service providers are not really present or they have scaled down. Um, I guess there is a practical reason to that, that they probably haven't had the approvals to kind of do that in the COVID environment. But nevertheless, I think this Money 2020 to me feels just fresher in terms of content and also in terms of the audience. Uh, I think it's good to see that some of the startups that were, you know, disruptors five years ago, now they're established fintechs and like, you know, legit companies. Um, so yeah, I would say that the playing field has changed the players a little bit, but I kind of think it's for the better. Yes, All right. I think it's also good to hear that finally the discussion has moved away from fintech versus banks. I think it's, uh, it's getting a bit old. Uh, and that everyone kind of understands now that it's about collaboration and not just between the fintechs and the banks, but also collaboration between fintechs amongst themselves and not try to do everything yourself, but look for the best partners. I think it's quite refreshing that finally that has sunk in All right. <laughs> with so the majority the, of the audience. The ecosystem play. And Julie? And I think the energy is back as well, because like, over the past year we attended all the panels online, and you would attend like some panels and you could like literally fall asleep right away because of lack of energy. And it's been nice to see like, you know, some lively panel on like great innovation coming in the future and like, you know, kind of topics that not only are coming like from the fintech space but all over the place for big banks and also like from the institution like CBDC and the uh, like to progress in the space. All right. It probably also feels a bit like the first day of school after the summer break and everyone's able to see, <laughs> yeah. see the friends again. But it also feels like decoding Instagram, you know, because we've seen everybody live on the screen and like, now oh, I see in person you have more wrinkles than you actually claim we had. <laughs> this, <laughs> must, this must be a women thing, guys. I'm going to cut it here. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, so, so uh, further on that, Maraca. Um, so payments are becoming more and more faceless and invisible. Right, uh, and detest from the real estate run-on. So now we hear 
they become embedded in full business processes. In fact, you at Bankify say so. So what does it all mean? Where is it going? Can, can I start with slightly disagreeing that the rails don't matter? <laughs> oh, of so, course. Um, from, from a consumer point of view, you're totally right. Um, for consumers, it's, to, it's irrelevant which rails are being used in Swan. Um, but we very much sit on the receiving side of the payment. And if you look at the mechanics of what's happening behind the scenes uh, when you make a card payment versus a bank transfer versus any other type of payment method, that has a downstream implication if you are a business owner on how you manage your finances, etc. Because in some cases, the money comes in straight away. In other cases, it only arrives four days later. There might be fees, there might not be fees, etc. Um, so uh, I think that um, the rails do not matter to the consumers, the payers, uh, but they very much do so uh, to the businesses and that brings me nicely to that um, embedded finance or embedded business model. Um, so in, in, in the past, um, let's say the finance or the accounting side of the business and um, the payment side is, and the banking side has been completely disconnected. Um, I think there's a, a, a big benefit in bringing that all together and make that one true end-to-end process and looking at it from, let's say, the, that business point of view and make sure that um, it's all wrapped up into one business process that makes sense to that business user and not something that's, uh, let's say, a chain of individual bits and pieces that you get from different providers. Okay, so... Sorry, can yeah, just of course. I think when we say, like, invisible payment, I do agree with you that, like, you know, the rents matter quite, quite a lot. And in fact, like, for me, when you say invisible payment, I'm thinking, which invisible payment? Yes, in some use cases, now the payment is, like, in, invisible and becoming more fully frictionless. But lately, like, I, I ended up being in three countries, and each time, my payment experience has been present in some given situation. And the reason for that is exactly because there is like yeah. the payment rate matter and there is still no interoperability in the payment rate. So I think like there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made. Okay, so so where does it leave the the big tax in this uh, in this in this whole picture? Well, I think some of them have actively picked up on building that ecosystem themselves. I think Amazon is the classic example of one of the big techs that um, decided that they want to play an active part in the whole value chain. Um, and so I think um, they're taking the opportunity to actually um, manage that end-to-end experience, become payment providers themselves, etc. Yeah. Uh, they're big enough to do so. Uh, but I still think there's enough room for um, other innovators, tech companies that are maybe smaller in scale but have more payments expertise to pick up more active volumes. Okay, so so in, do you agree with this, Jane? Yeah, I do definitely. I, I definitely do agree. But I think, and I was speaking about this in the panel today, I think we have all, you know, there's enough technology out there again to enhance the user experience and the like, wallets and, uh, you know, this talk about the super apps. And I do think that, you know, there will be a you know, quite a few payment methods that in the future will kind of be accepted and dominate. I, never, I don't think there will be just one, two, or three. Um, but I think there is a big issue as, um, uh, you know, to what Marika and Julia have said, is how do we make the planet truly international? Because a lot of countries, and China is a good example, um, you know, very advanced in the wallet um, 
in the in the wallet uh, kind of paradigm, and every other country has their own you know, fairly advanced um, payment method, but then they're not transferable to another geography, and that's gonna, that's where there needs to be some common. Um, sponsor, so to speak, of pushing the seamless payment rail infrastructure so that um, you know, it can be internationally accepted. I do think that maybe the blockchain will be um, eventually something that will, in a way, um, win over that space, but I don't think we're Okay, well, we'll come to that subject. So basically the consensus here is that there is money to be made by payment service providers still. Is that correct? Well, I think it's all—it's also about all the value adds you can create around the pure processing of the payments. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking not just about the traditional things like fraud management, etc. but I think there is plenty of room, especially on the receiving side of payments, to do more with the payments, with the data that you can get from the payments for those that are the merchants in, in a cards world or whatever you want to call them. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for payment service providers to, to do clever things um, and create value for, for their clients and there's definitely some money to be made there, I would think. I think for me there is a cost problem in the area. It's basically like, so if you think of today what customers are the Jane, I want to talk about uh, big tax uh, with you um, for a while because they are betting largely on uh, e-wallets and super apps uh, and often bypassing the uh, traditional card and payment rails. And on the other hand, you see the traditional banks and credit card companies investing heavily in these, let's call it, old rails, right? Is there in your view a way that the old and the new world will meet or at least link up together? And if so, how would that look like? Yeah, look, again, so we um, actually, again, something that we discussed earlier today uh, on a panel. So there is a paradigm of using the infrastructure, all the rails that, you know, Visa, MasterCard, and the banks have laid out. And ultimately, again, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the wallets that are doing so well these days, they still largely, um, uh, you know, do work from the card infrastructure. And on the other hand, if we're kind of going to forego the uh, hard reality, then we're going into the account-to-account, instant payment space, QR codes, you know, payment, just transferring the money by uh, mobile phone, using the mobile number as an authenticator, using identity as an authenticator. At this moment, I would say, again, depending on where you are in the world, um, these um, kind of payment paradigms, 
they, I would say, coexist. In some geographies, again, probably like Asia or China, um, the non-card space dominates. Uh, in you know, Western Europe and the US, it's still more of a card-backed uh, paradigm. Again, all the Apple face of the world, no matter how prevalent, they still work off you know, with a card in the background. So I think there is definitely a move towards coexistence. Um, and I think these worlds will meet. I think they will probably exist together for a long time. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. Right, Julie. Uh, thanks, Sir Jane. Uh, Julie, um, customers want more and more and anytime, anywhere, and any device, a fast, fast experience. So besides the social negative effects that can bring, so people have no clue anymore, um, if they can afford what they buy, etc., uh, because it's so invisible. Um, fraud and money laundering are obviously aspects of this faceless future that we have to think through. What are developments you see today that can help prevent fraud and money laundering? I think for me, like data analytics is one of them. And in fact, it's not something that WebConvest is trying to do in the space of modern slavery and child sexual exploitation. So uh, really much analyzing the payment flow and so on to find some pattern. So I think for me, really leverage technology is one of them. And if you look at what happened with COVID-19, you got uh, an increase of fraud all over the place, right? Um, and it was interesting to see that budgets and money being allocated trying to stop prevent fraud in the right? Most of these funds have been allocated to actually adding more operations, so adding more human as opposed to leveraging the technology. So for me, definitely technology, definitely the technology is probably the And I think like we discuss again, sorry if you sound like a broken record, but coming back to the way, um, the notion of interoperability, standard across the board, we also like simplifying so then you have enough data coming from all over the place, plugging your data and really like prevent the cost of the Actually, I actually learned something quite interesting today. Um, so we were discussing about the open data economy and you know what would be the next things that we could achieve and so on. And um, it seems that the Dutch government has now um, passed a law, I'm not sure if it's a law yet, uh, but that also allows financial institutions to share information about fraudulent transactions, which I think is, is a great move forward because you can do all the fraud monitoring 
on your own set of data, but if you're able to share that across the network of banks that you are in a given jurisdiction, I think that gives you much more clues, um, and that would definitely help a lot in that space. And, and this is an area, sorry, this is an area that we should progress because if you look at what is the initiative in the world, you have Netherlands, you have so, so quickly, your view, because we had, um, for example, Oliver Bullo in the, in the podcast, and we have Dave Birch. And Oliver Bullo said, okay, we, we should do everything to keep the criminals out of the financial system. Dave Birch said, okay, let them in and use technology just to catch the thieves, let's call it that way, or the bad guys, um, during the transaction. So let them in and then catch them. So, you have a, a quick opinion about that? Well, I would say, as usual, the truth is somewhere in the middle. I would say that uh, it's difficult to come up with the best solution in a lab, right? So, which is why we probably do need to let some of those uh, um, criminals uh, in, just because that gives you, that puts you in the environment to really understand how they think and try to catch them. Um, so, you know, that kind of my point of view, because otherwise you can guess and over-guess and do this whole kind of rule base. Whatever you do, you just in the use cases, so to speak. I don't think you can go one way or the other. I think it makes a lot of sense to try your best to keep those fraudsters or criminals out, because you don't want to put any risk uh, on your customers. But then again, I also think it's inevitable that they will get in and you then need to be able to catch them and you know, mitigate the risk of solving yeah, them. Yes. So I, I, I don't think it's like a, one or the other. Yeah, and I think for me, like, the best example of this has been what we've seen recently, right? is one of the people of blockchain being corrupted and then uh, the fraudster giving back the money as well. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess we need more of this to have like you know, stronger system as well. Okay. Fraudster like his money back. <laughs> Alright, so we're coming a little bit to the end of this uh, podcast, but I have a... Um, so, so you know, we're, we discussed the frictionless, faceless uh, future. Um, question that um, that I had was: um, Is this helping or not helping the financial inclusion of people? What do you think? I think it's a double-edged sword. Um, I think if it if payments become frictionless and more accessible in general, it's not just about friction, um, it's also about being able to access payments. Um, it can definitely help financial inclusion. At the same time, I think if you make financial services, and I'm not talking just about payments more accessible, you also create a risk for people that are probably a bit more vulnerable. And I'm thinking about the whole PNPL hype at the moment. Um, this, in theory, is great if you're like a good, um, you know, keeper of, of your money and you know what you're doing financially. Um, I do think it also leaves the door open for people who are probably more susceptible to getting into debt and so on. So I think it's a really difficult balancing act. Technology can do a lot of good, making it very easy to access something can potentially also do a lot of damage for people that need to be probably protected from themselves a bit. Yeah. But on the other hand, there is also, I think it's a certain element of maturity. You know, so we work a lot in 
emerging markets, right? So we're all gonna, and it's quite easy to see how, say, still the US press or portrays as like some kind of Indian country. It's like the Wild West. But the thing is, like, it's just that they're going through the through this period now, what like you know, what European countries or US have got like you know, hundred years ago. So I think ultimately um, the uh, frictionless, uh, you know, seamless payments and embedded payments, um, they're ultimately a good thing. Um, I agree with Marika's point that there will be probably some kind of balance built from the perspective that you know when you get offered either microfinance or like sharp loans in some of the geographies or BNPL here, which is also not that much different. And again, especially now, me, myself, that I'm doing online shopping, very often you come to a checkout page and you have like five different, like six different uh, payment methods, all of them being Affirm or Pay with Klarna or something else. And so by the time you just scroll down to like PayPal, you're already like, oh my God. But some people don't do that, right? So they can say, oh, there's something that costs $100, but I can pay just $1 now. So there is an element of kind of education. I think, of course, like those uh, BNPL should be regulated, same as like microfinance should be regulated. But I think sometimes you need to go from painful education um, to then make a certain leap forward. So I would say generally it's probably aiding financial inclusion, but I do not disagree that the process is not uh, a painful one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Julie? I think like probably we cannot think of financial inclusion without financial literacy. And now, actually, like, you know, when you, for example, subscribe to the NPN solution, like, what is, what does APR with the name, like, how much, okay, it may be free for so long, but then if I don't pay, I'm still having a solution. I think, like, this is a piece that is missing often, so, uh, wait for access, definitely helping, but we just need to make sure that we help people in the world. Maybe it's not about reducing the friction per se, but more also about payments more understandable. We, we do this on a daily Education. basis. Education. <laughs> and, yeah. Education. All right. And access to technology, obviously, right? You don't have access. Technology is just a facilitator. It makes things happen. Oh, okay. Thank you, Julie, Jane and Marijka for joining us at this Finta Cappuccino, live from the MoneyPod podcast booth at Money 2020 Europe. And thank you for listening to Finta Cappuccino. Don't want to miss another cup? Subscribe to our podcast via Spotify, iTunes, or where you like to listen to your podcast. And please give us a like, a review. So many more Finta Cappuccino lovers can find us. Thank you.